0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C., and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos, and welcome to Latin Pulse.
1: This week, we focus on the weakness of democracies in Latin America just how our Constitution's being bent to the interests of the powerful. We'll have answers from a panel of experts and examples from El Salvador, Honduras, Paraguay, and more, along with an explanation of just what is an express coup. But first, Colin Campbell is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America.
0: Mexico's peace movement, called the Caravan for Peace, ended its tour of the United States this week with a stop in Washington, D.C., these Mexican activists are calling for policy changes in both the U.S. and Mexico to end Mexico's deadly confrontation with drug cartels. One of the group's organizers, Roberto Villanueva, called on citizens of the U.S. to lobby their members of Congress to change laws. It would be better to control the traffic in firearms between the United States and Mexico. This is one of the important themes in the current policy of the prohibition of drugs, which, if you recall, is like the history of the prohibition of alcohol. The Caravan for Peace stopped in 25 U.S. cities on its tour that started in San Diego last month. Mexican officials say that at least 55,000 have died in the drug war since 2006. Mexican authorities say they've captured one of the top leaders of the Gulf cartel in the border state of Tamaulipas. Mexican Marines detained Jorge Eduardo Castilla-Sanchez earlier this week. He's the second top leader in the Gulf Cartel. Mexican authorities say they've caught in the past two weeks. The Gulf Cartel is locked in battles not only with Mexican authorities, but also the Zetas Cartel, for territory along Mexico's Gulf Coast. Tens of thousands are evacuating their homes south of Guatemala City due to the eruptions of Volcan de Fuego, one of Central America's most active volcanoes. The volcano is spewing boulders as high as thousands of feet in the air, and lava flows threaten nearby villages. Guatemalan officials warn that flights into the country could be rerouted if the volcano continues shooting rocks and ash into the sky. Cuba says it is ready to negotiate with the U.S. over the release of Alan Gross. Gross is serving a 15-year sentence in Cuba on espionage charges. He was convicted last year. Gross was a contractor for the U.S. Agency for International Development. He says he was delivering computers and satellite equipment to Cuba's Jewish community, but Cuban officials say he was aiding dissidents. Gross is 63 years old. His wife says she fears he will not survive his sentence. For Latin Pulse, I'm Colin Campbell.
1: This week we have some catching up to do on Latin Pulse from our summer hiatus. Regular listeners know we've devoted parts of several programs to the controversial change in presidents in Paraguay. But what escaped our focus was a more subtle constitutional crisis in El Salvador. That's where the country's Supreme Court has ruled the National Assembly has abused its powers in naming justices to the country's high court. That dispute has resulted in demonstrations, rallies, and criticism that if the Assembly's appointments stand, then the Salvadoran judiciary will have lost its independence. Some are saying El Salvador is now among those struggling young democracies in Latin America with an unbalanced system of checks and balances. Joining us to discuss the complex issue of how the constitutions of these young democracies are being abused are two experts, Fulton Armstrong of American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies and Jeff Thale of the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA. Gentlemen, welcome to Latin Pulse.
2: Delighted to be here.
1: Jeff, you've written extensively about the problem in El Salvador, so let's start there. Why is this something to worry about?
3: Well, the immediate crisis actually is over. I mean, it has been resolved in the sense that the Salvadoran legislature has finally accepted the decision of the Supreme Court and has agreed to rename justices. So, in some sense, the immediate crisis is over. One- and
1: and we have a and we have a head of the of the Supreme Court who everyone Regards as the head of the Supreme Court. We don't have two chief justices anymore. There was
3: a brief period in which there were um, two constitutional courts, two constitutional chambers of the Supreme Court and two chief justices. And that's over. The original set, the pre-June, pre-summer set of justices has been reinstated. There is a new chief justice who is a compromise candidate, who is neither of the two uh, preceding justices. So in some immediate sense, the crisis has been over. But what I think is important to emphasize here is that the Salvadoran Supreme Court made a ruling, and the real question was whether – which had to do with how justices were named. And that obviously has to do with the political influence of the parties in the legislature. And when justices are named is important because at some moments one political party dominates and at some moments others. So the court ruled – The truth is, nobody, not the assembly, not the political parties, not the president, nobody particularly liked the Supreme Court's decision, not just this decision, but a whole pattern of decisions. Because for the first time in its history, the Salvadoran, the Constitutional Chamber of the Salvadoran Supreme Court, has exercised independence from all of the political parties that named it and from the president and made decisions which in my view, were pretty good ones on a constitutional basis, but which left everybody unhappy.
1: So they actually acted like a Supreme Court.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a big step forward. It was a big step forward in Salvadoran democracy. And so when they made this decision about the justices, the question was, would the political parties in the assembly accept it? And the first point is that the Conservative Party, Arena, the traditional party that until very recently has dominated the government and the legislature, didn't want to accept it. Because if you if they got if you changed the timing of when justices were named, they'd have a bigger majority, they would name more, and they would dominate the Supreme Court. So they challenged the decision. And they not only challenged the decision in El Salvador. They came here, their lobbyists here to Washington, D.C., to to try and make the case to people in the Senate in particular and in the administration that what was going on was not just a political dispute between parties about timing, but was a constitutional crisis. And according to them, an attempt by the left to seize power by manipulating the the constitutional process.
1: And so that means the FMLN, the party that uh, is in power in the executive power. The president is a member of the FMLN. Does the FMLN dominate the, the National Assembly, Fulton, in, in El Salvador?
2: I don't know the exact numbers that they've got, but, the, um, but they certainly had enough to do their votes. Right. I mean, I was uncomfortable all along with this, with this term, constitutional crisis. That was really fabricated by one of the two parties that had actually done exactly the same thing in the past. In 2006, ARENA, when they had their pluralities and they had their numbers and stuff, they did exactly the same thing by trying to take a second whack at choosing justices and all of that. And in that case, the courts went with them and all that. And so this term constitutional crisis would sound like some of the other crises that we're seeing in Latin America uh, where you really and truly do have a usurpation of power and where you really and truly do have people trying to remove legitimately democratically elected heads of state or other, or other officials. And so the constitutional crisis thing, as Jeff just said really well, was very much of a fabrication to influence Washington's reaction to an internal political struggle. It was a political crisis, but not a constitutional crisis. And the lobbyists came up here with very well-honed talking points. They happened to have been similar to lobbyists uh, that had worked other constitutional crises, if you will, but true constitutional crises like the, the coup in Honduras in 2009 that basically were trying to cast anybody that was center or center-left, any political action that they did was somehow some constitutional uh, crisis, some sort of usurpation of the Constitution. So I didn't like that term from the It was a political crisis. One party, the party, the FMLN, tried the same stunt that Arena had tried and succeeded at in the past. But they fell into a trap because Arena's control over the state security apparatus, over the courts, over the lobbyists, over Washington, D.C., was much more extensive than they had judged.
1: Some people thought that this was also going to be a trap for President Funes. Did he fall into the trap? How did President Funes react to this?
2: I mean I, I really admire um the alternation of power that, that Salvador has experienced. I admire President Funes as a man, as a transitional figure, as a moderate within a party that has come a long, long way toward the center, but isn't completely there. It's a factionalized party. He's done an incredible job trying to balance these two things, knowing that Salvador's future is in the center, not in the far right, just as the Arena people should realize that the future is in the center and not on the far, far right that still controls... Them. But there are his, elements of the
1: FMLN that would, would argue that it should be on the far left, we should never go Correct. to the center.
2: Correct, which is a, which is a which is a nice dynamic for a country that's still in transition, but has come a long, long way, farther than anybody had ever predicted. President Funes' problem here was really not a sin of commission, but omission. He didn't jump into the battle early enough because I think he underestimated, frankly, the scope of how much, how little control he was going to have over where this story went, both in Salvador and importantly in Washington. This was a huge coup. I don't mean it in the constitutional yeah. sense of the word, but I mean golpe, a huge coup um, for FM for the Arena people up here in Washington that they've successfully cast the FMLN as being unconstitutionalist. Right. Well, well, let's can I jump l- in please, on that one because
3: two, two things. One is to say I agree with Fulton that. President Funes' sin, if that's what it was, was a sin of omission. When he finally saw that he needed to force the parties to sit down and come to a deal, he did so. And I think that's really to his credit. It took yeah. him a while to get there, but when he got there, he did the right thing. Here, it's really quite striking that what everybody in El Salvador understood as a political fight between the parties for domination in the, national, in the, in the Supreme Court got reinterpreted here by both Democratic and Republican senators and by analysts in the Wall Street Journal and other places as a constitutional coup manufactured by pro-Chavez, left-wing forces in Latin America. And that's really, really a misunderstanding of the internal political realities of the country and really a manipulation of those realities to serve a very specific set of political interests. And that's, that's really, I agree with Fulton, that's really very troubling for what it says about our collective understanding and therefore our collective action and our government's action toward not just El Salvador but the region as a whole.
1: Which is why we need to have these types of right. discussions. So help us... Tie up this loop in a way. What happened? This happened during the summer. So, could anything have happened on Capitol Hill during the summer with this, or is it just a question of image building?
2: Image is important. This is this is Washington. Everything is image, and you have um, if you've read the platforms of the two parties as we approach this uh, this this election. And now stuff, we're talking about our parties, the our Democrats parties, and Republicans. Yeah, <laughs> yes. um, yeah. Uh, although sometimes they read. You know, indistinguishably. The, um, the, the When you look at that, the image thing is really, really important because you're molding. The the, uh, the optic here is, as Jeff was alluding to, and I was saying earlier, is now we have a new Satan in Latin America, and it's Chavez. And the more that you force our two parties to deal with this Satan, you know, Castro's not the threat anymore, it's Chavez. The more, if you go back to the coup in Honduras in 2009, every second talking point of the golpistas was the Chavez threat. We stopped it. Remember, Ronald Reagan had referred to Nicaragua being a two-day drive to Harlingen, Texas. And some of the golpistas, the Honduran, I think it was the chief of staff of the army, had said on national TV that we've stopped the spread of Chavista neo-communism from reaching the American borders, basically two days drive from Harlingen, Texas, and all that. I mean, come on. That's, what, that's what's behind this whole dynamic. They watched the people uh, of this particular political pers- persuasion down in Central America and in Latin America writ large, because if you look at the Paraguay constitutional coup and you look at other measures in this hemisphere, they realize that the right wing here in Washington, D.C., has has the chutzpah, has the, has the drive to do these issues. They're Manichean, black and white, neo-communism sorts of stuff that most serious Latin Americanists don't take seriously, but it really works politically. You put the administration on its heels, they they don't know how to respond to it, and if you look, for example, at some of the challenges that are coming up now in President Obama, what have you done about Chavez? What have you done about this? What have you done about that?
1: What have we done about Chavez, and and do we really need to worry about him, Jeff? That's for Jeff to answer. Well,
2: there are real
3: questions. Is the Chavez administration a paragon of liberal democracy? The answer is no. Is the Chavez administration a threat to hemispheric security, the answer is equally no. The Chavez government is a government with some problems from our point of view, problems from the point of view of U.S. energy interests. It is not a fundamental threat to the stability of the United States, nor is it a power attempting to amass anti-American forces in the hemisphere to contest us. And that framework is fundamentally wrong and will fundamentally lead us down the wrong path.
2: And I think that we need to to further discuss a little bit what are our values, what are our policies, and why don't we apply them evenly across the political spectrum.
1: And so maybe we will rejoin those themes in a bit. Visiting with us today Fulton Armstrong of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, and Jeff Thale of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, on Latin Pulse. We'll be back momentarily. I want to finish school. And then go to college to be able to graduate graduate and
0: have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future.
3: The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Our guests today, Fulton Armstrong of the American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies and Jeff Thale of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA. We have been talking about constitutional crises in Latin America. And before the break, we talked about the U.S. reaction standards that we apply in our reactions. and, And we hovered a bit around the Honduran coup something that people have called an express coup. This is a term we've heard since Honduras, and we heard it this summer again with Paraguay. So tell us a little bit about express coups, gentlemen, and what standards Washington has applied, if any, in reaction.
2: Well, the Honduras coup is a good one to start with because that's one where all of the criteria for calling it a military coup were present. This was a case where the military, in in conspiracy with political players, Went in, shot up the president's house, forced him on the ground in his underwear, carried him out to a helicopter, and then flew him out of, of the country.
1: But it was a congressional it, coup, was it not? Uh,
2: actually, the congressional part of it was done a day and a half after the coup. It was basically a cover for what was already predetermined on that fateful what was a Saturday night Saturday or night. Yeah. Saturday night, uh, and all that. I mean, that one was pretty stark. Uh, Even though I think we have to respect the State Department lawyers fudging a little bit and saying, well, since the military didn't take over, they were only indirect beneficiaries of the coup, should we call it a military coup? Let the lawyers dance on the head of a pin if they feel the need to. But in common plain English and certainly in policy terms, that was a coup. That was a golpe de estado that led to the irregular, the introduction of a golpista government, an interim golpista government that today still is contributing, that crisis, to the unraveling of institutions of peace, of rule of law, and including the political system uh, in Honduras.
1: And some would argue that the Obama administration fumbled that.
2: Well, I mean, fumbled. I think they got off to the right start. They knew that they needed to go multilateral, so they went to the OAS. I think they needed to go. Organization of American States. The Organization of American States. I think that they realized also that the restoration, endorsing a coup, is not what the United States of America is all about. The Bush people made a mistake of endorsing the coup and supporting the coup against Chavez um, yeah. several years earlier, two thousand and two or something, and that turned out to have been a disaster for our image in, in the hemisphere. It was also a failure because he was he was <laughs> restored reinstated, yeah he was reinstated. But the, the fact is that the starting point was good, but the bureaucrats uh, the, and the bureaucracy, and certainly once the lobbyists were deployed here in Washington, it was a losing battle, even for the well-intentioned members of the, of the Obama administration. Remember also that the nominated Sec- Assistant Secretary of State still wasn't in his position because of political shenanigans. So we had already a very rich political bed in which, in which this stuff could, um, could be happening.
1: So, Jeff Thale, was the Honduran coup the model for what happened in Paraguay? Is it the model for El Salvador?
3: I don't think it's the model for El Salvador. I do think it's the model for Paraguay. Just one follow-up comment on what Fulton said. I think it's right that, you know, President Obama called it a coup right away. The initial steps on the part of the U.S. government were, were I think, the right ones. Um, Calling it what it was and reaching out to the international community to try and condemn it and push back. And then what you see later on is internal fights in the administration, different interests in the bureaucracy, and pressure from the Honduran right and their allies here and abroad. And you see nominations being held up, and you see ambassadorial appointments being held up. And eventually, I think the administration sort of gives up because the truth is Honduras and Honduras policy aren't important enough to them in relation to their other political interests, and our policy moves in the wrong direction.
2: And President Zelaya wasn't the easiest partner uh, in in the restoration.
3: Right, to defend, yeah. And so I think Paraguay, um, in some sense, Honduras is the model for a a constitutional coup, an express coup where there's some veneer of legality. There's a, in the case of Honduras, a Supreme Court decision whose legality is, I, I think it's pretty clear, it wasn't legal.
2: Highly, but, highly, highly. But they have a piece
3: of paper they can wave, and they give it to the army, and the army forces the lie out of the country. And the next day, the legislature votes him out. and So they, they create a veneer of legality. But the point is, under a veneer of legality, very quickly, traditional political and economic interests who's, who feel challenged by a center-left center president um, push back and replace him. And I think that's exactly what you see in, in the case of Paraguay. President Lugo started off very popular, uh, tremendous popular support. He lost a fair amount of that for a variety of reasons. Um, he, he generated a lot of hostility from traditional political elites, and there came a moment where, because of a, a a fight between police and landless peasants seizing land uh, some the the <clears throat> political parties use this as an excuse to impeach Lugo in a period from the time it was announced till he's ordered out of the presidency of thirty hours and that's certainly an express impeachment, and I think de facto, under the veneer of legality, it's an express coup. And I think the dangerous thing is that I think that sectors of the Paraguayan right said they did it in Honduras. We can probably do it here, and that's what I think is a troubling issue in terms of the broader challenge of democracy in the hemisphere. I
2: mean, one, one of the stereotypes of Latin America and Latin Americanists, including me and Jeff, is that we, we know the letter of everything, but sometimes we don't always appreciate the spirit of everything. The fact is that a constitutional lawyer probably could find a way of interpreting Paraguay's constitution to say that, yes, it was all legal, but constitutions are, are living documents that embody much more than the words. They embody the spirit. And frankly, our policy shouldn't be based on just words. It should also be based on spirit. We were largely silent, if not deadly silent, uh, on, the, on the constitutional coup against President Lugo, who is a man who really does embody this sort of transition that a lot of Latin American countries are going through and by, by need have to be going through. The fact is that what happened in Paraguay did not observe the spirit of democracy in any way whatsoever. And we let it happen. We let it happen. So we now have another precedent. And anybody else with a, with a centrist or leftist sort of, of bent has to be wondering, where will the United States be if my right wing, with the security services still tend to be very much under the thumb of the right wing, where, are we going to, where am I going to be if these people threaten me? The the, the whole thing here about U.S. policy has to be that we have to start harmonizing and standardizing how we apply these sorts of things, whether it's human rights or constitutions or our definition of democracy. When we have, in the case, for example, comparing Colombia and Venezuela, where we have very different human rights situations, very different. In the case of, of Venezuela, we have legitimate concerns about the the party system about the freedom of the media about crowding out dissent of harassing people and stuff like that but and we jump down chavez's throat every single time that he does something Right next door, you have a, a human rights situation, and Wola's has done a lot of research on this, as did the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when I was on it, of, of thousands of people having been disappeared, sometimes not for political reasons, sometimes just so that military people could have an extra weekend off or get a pay bonus. But not a single thing uh, has, been, has been effectively uh, investigated by the United States for policy purposes. The harassment, Chavez harasses his political opponents. President Uribe had harassed his own nation, his own Supreme Court, that Supreme Court people were living in fear for their lives or using the intelligence service to to uh, to arrest. I'm not saying that we need to crack down on this or crack down on that. What we need to do is have a policy that applies definitions of democracy, constitutions, human rights, freedoms, and things.
1: And just so I can tie some themes here together, we have talked a bit the last two weeks about Colombia, but not with the depth that we've just heard now from Fulton Armstrong. But let me turn back to Jeff Thale and ask, you said that the people on the right in Paraguay looked at the situation and said, we can get away with this express coup. Didn't, in fact, they did get away with it because yeah. the OAS, uh, Mercosur, right. um, reacted in, in very minor ways, and, and there doesn't seem to be a penalty. At
2: right.
3: Time. I think that's one of the troubling things, which is that <clears throat> there is some rhetorical criticism from Brazil and from Venezuela and other people. There was no substantive sustained diplomatic pressure on the Paraguayans to to deal with this situation in some different way. And, you know, I, uh, this is what Fulton, Fulton, the point Fulton is making, I think, which is if you look at the United States and its policy toward the hemisphere.
1: Um, which is disengagement, is it not?
3: Well, it has, you know, we have a set of friends and enemies, but it's certainly not a fully engaged policy trying to strengthen democracy consistently across the board. And I think Paraguay is the great example of that. We're not, we shouldn't be going in unilaterally to tell Paraguayans what to do. We should, working, we should have, working with the diplomatic community, including everybody from Venezuela to Colombia, um, have clearly condemned the coup, called it a coup, and pressed for its reversal.
1: Fulton, any other reaction to that? Disengagement or to the coup? Well, to both
2: maybe benign disengagement. I think that sometimes we tend to fly in and out of issues, which basically gives the lobbyists a lot more sway over how Washington perceives things. If you look at the olden days, a long, long, long time ago when we were young, and you look at the 1980s, we actually had foreign correspondence through much of yeah. much of Latin America. Now you have one or two people who are doing all of South America, sometimes from a capital where perceptions of their neighboring countries isn't exactly the easiest thing to filter filter through. And I'll say
1: guilty as charged because the media have retreated. But, yeah. but so have the politicians. We are hearing the silence on Latin America. Is it because it's an election year?
2: Well, I think we've had a lot of silence for a lot of years Um, unfortunately, one of the things where we were not silent, one of the mechanisms, one of the few institutionalizations that we had of high-end engagement, the Summit of the Americas, sort of blew up in President Obama's face this year, and there's now a question of what its future is going to be.
3: Right. I think it's pretty clear across the board that we've had a policy of disengagement for some time. At the same time, as Latin American governments have been growing economically, Um, and playing a bigger role um, internationally. And we face a situation today where we have less influence and Latin America is much more able to act independent of us. If we have interests we want to pursue there, we need to engage in a new way with those countries in a way that's more respectful of who they are and where they are and less likely to ignore them some moments and then try to tell them what to do others.
1: Fulton, you have something to add to that? But just that we need,
2: to, we need to re-engage also on the aid thing. We used to actually do aid programs. Now what we do is democracy promotion programs, which are always intended to change people rather than let them develop necessarily along their own national ambitions.
1: But this raises the ironic point that if we're developing democracy and, and avoiding using the word coup, isn't that hypocritical?
2: Uh, you, you can say that <laughs> if you wish. It's your show. <laughs> Yes. That's Actually, can I nice. make one just last Just one,
3: one, one, one more uh, point, please. Just, just I want to point out that one of the particular ironies of this discussion is that uh, I believe President Lugo's first public address after he was elected was here at American University.
1: Thank you for that. Jeff Thale of the Washington Office on Latin America and Fulton Armstrong of American University, Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, join us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, gentlemen.
2: Our pleasure. Yep.
1: Indeed, our home base of American University is where former President Lugo made his first speaking appearance in the United States after his historic election. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org. Forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at LatinPulse at gmx.com. That's LatinPulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us on Latin Pulse this week for our entire team announcer Victor Kilo, sound tech Jenna Longoria, and writers Jordan Derry and Colin Campbell. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo.
0: Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.